Welcome to episode 196 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Wednesday, August 1st, 2018. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed of BikeBiz.com, and first off, I've got an apology to make. The RSS feed for this show isn't working as it should. Episode 195 has yet to appear in the feed, and for the life of me I can't work out why. However, it will get fixed. I just don't know when. So, if you're listening from the website, or clicking the Libsyn play button, or perhaps downloading the MP3 directly, then you're all good. But the last episode isn't yet available in iTunes or other podcast aggregators, so sorry about that. Okay, back to today. And I chatted with Chris and Melissa Bruntlett of Vancouver, Canada. We spent an hour talking about their new book, which is an exploration of why Dutch people cycle so much, and how that can be exported elsewhere in the world. I am reading a book at the moment, uh, digitally, that is, because it's not physically, I think it is physically out, but I haven't got a physical copy of it, uh, but I, I, I've been sent a, a PDF of it uh, by... Island Press, who, who published my books too. And that book is called uh, Building the Cycling City, The Dutch Blueprint for Urban Vitality. And it is by Melissa and Chris Bruntlett, who are squeezed over a, a machine at the moment, uh, talking to me from, from Vancouver, Canada. Good, uh, well, it's good afternoon for me, but it's good morning for you. So uh, hi there. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing I'm, I'm doing great. So we have met in the flesh. Uh, you were very kind uh, with you and your children. You you gave us a, a micro tour of of Vancouver. Ooh, six months ago. Was it? It was last year? July. It was 12, 12 months ago. Twelve months. Ago. Oh my word. Okay, doesn't time fly? Uh, so you, at that point, um, Chris and Melissa, you were you were still working on this book. Uh, so now it's physically. It's 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 out. Yes, it's it's like at the end of the month technically, but there are physical copies right now. That's correct. Yeah, we uh, the official release date is uh, August the twenty eighth, but through some miracle of publishing, the copying, editing, and production process went so quickly that they started shipping books um, almost eight weeks before the <laughs> release date. And so uh, there's a lot of online outlets that have stock that are shipping and. Uh, the only exception to that, I believe, is Amazon, which waits until the physical release date before they start shipping their books. Okay. Now, I also saw you uh, in the Netherlands uh, at uh, at the last Velo City. Um, not the last Velo City, because that was in Brazil, wasn't it? But the the, the, Velo, the last European Velo City. So the last cycle advocacy uh, conference that was taking place uh, in Europe. And presumably you went on from there to do some of the research for your book. 
the research actually started um, the year prior. So on our first trip there in 2016, uh, we were there for five weeks, and we're right. We from that we wrote a series of articles for a local online publication called Daily Hive. Um, but a lot of what we were writing, or what we saw and experienced, we weren't able to fit into the 1,500 words per city. Uh, so that ended up becoming the preliminary research for and the pitch for the book. And then when we went back to Velo City, it was firming up some of those contacts to to beef out what we what we wanted to talk about a little bit more and um, discovering new storylines too. I mean, yeah. there were. Um, we, for example, stumbled across the city of Austin's work with the Dutch Cycling Embassy, which we had no idea um, was taking place. But they were working quite closely with them um, on a bicycle master plan um, with Dutch cycling experts. So it was it was neat to explore the storylines we had in our minds, but also to discover new ones that we wanted to to explore in the book. And the Velo City Conference was the perfect venue for that. Mm-hmm. And you had your kids with you. When, so when, when you've been doing the, this research for the book and you went to the Netherlands, you had your kids with you at this point and you were all cycling around as a family? Yeah, that first trip, uh, we did five weeks, five cities, and it was a family adventure. So the whole idea was to essentially spend the time living like the Dutch as much as we could coming from you know Canada and only living in places for you know a week or a week and a half at a time. Um, but yeah, we... Uh, we cycled in every single city. The kids took to it uh, very easily. And, yeah, we enjoyed just sort of living and experiencing the cities as a family. Now, Vancouver is kind of some way down the road, some way down the cycle path, in fact, uh, <laughs> at having a kind, I'm not saying it's a Dutch culture, but it, it, it's a pretty good uh, place to ride a bike. I mean, there, there are obvious parts where it's not good. But there's a, there's some beautiful places to ride a bike in, in Vancouver. Uh, presumably, you're looking to have this book read by people who are not living in places like Vancouver, other places in North America, other places like, for instance, like in the UK, uh, where the, the template you're talking about uh, uh, needs to to come at a much much uh, higher level than, in, say, in Vancouver. Yeah, I think, I mean, we do see the applications here in Vancouver because what we like to think is, you know, our Vancouver has come quite far, but uh, we we don't want, you know, city planners and city officials to start resting on their laurels and we want them to keep pushing beyond. And, you know, the Netherlands becomes a perfect example of how they can keep pushing forward. Um, but yeah, in terms of other, other cities, what we really hoped is that our book is something that you know, someone within the urbanist community or cycling community could read it, understand it, and see how, if they were to pass it on to a city councillor who knows nothing about cycling infrastructure, could read it and understand the concepts in it. And so that's what we're what our goal really was, is to reach the people that aren't already drinking the Kool-Aid like, like us bikey people <laughs> and can understand the concepts that the Dutch are trying to, or the Dutch have created a perfect example for and a perfect, perfect blueprint for. Mm-hmm. So that that blueprint, which is in the the, the title of the book, so the, the rest of the book is is you're talking to people. Basically, you are going around and you are chatting to uh, experts and non-experts and just trying to drill down into what makes what what are the building blocks for for creating a Dutch cycling culture? Yeah, a, a, a city that is built around bikes. 
That's correct. Yeah. And I mean, it's not all brick and mortar stuff. I mean, there's there's cultural um, contributing factors from the, you know, the way the, the culture or the society approaches cycling, the type of bikes that they ride, um, the political willingness to kind of <laughs> put your neck out and uh, and and start thinking beyond beyond the, the next political cycle. Um, and I think what everybody thinks about when it comes to how the Dutch got the cycle passed is this um, collective activism that they really um, pioneered in the 70s and said when the modernist planners came along to um, start retrofitting their cities for the automobile, they really, in a lot of ways, put their foot down and said, no, we, we want to retain these human scale cities for the most part. And, and we're quite successful in resisting that urge to uh, build um, large parking lots, tall buildings, wide streets, as, as we've done perhaps elsewhere in the world. So the Netherlands has been the world's top cycling nation since 1911, at least. And mm-hmm. that's when it started, you know, really getting into its infrastructure uh, big time. So that's an awfully long time ago. Uh, we were talking like 110 years. So the, the Netherlands is 110 years ahead of most other places. So how can you how can you even start to replicate a 110-year journey? I think it starts with recognizing that, um, you know, the Dutch aren't perfect and they almost went down a very similar path that we did. You know, for example, Rotterdam, once after the bombing, they had a blank canvas and were able to start building that modernist city. But then in the 70s, realized, uh, the citizens at least realized this was the wrong way forward and course corrected. But I think even further, even even more beyond that, what we discovered throughout our research was that it's not a matter of it being completely perfect for every city. Every city has these contextual lessons that can be applied even in the smallest scale in North America to start building on that. You know, just understanding building cycle tracks to connect people to short trips, whether that's to schools or shopping or you know, citizens standing up and saying, this isn't what we want and keeping, keeping that pressure on local officials to recognize the importance of providing safety for people and, and calming the car and making more space for walking and cycling. Um, you know, we are, you know, in the rest of the Western world, pretty far behind where, where the Dutch are, but, what they provide is sort of an example that you can get there and it, it's not about a copy-paste solution. It's about finding the solutions that make sense for your given city, whether you're more of a suburban town or a large city center. There are ways of starting to integrate this into how we design our streets and how we design our cities. Yeah, and I think Miriam um, from the Dutch Cycling Embassy actually said it best um, in that, uh, you know, the Dutch achieved the success over 100 years um, but there's no reason that we can't learn from their mistakes and do it even faster. Um, but that does require analyzing where they got it right and where they got it wrong and, and then hopefully um, implementing these, these lessons and these uh, building blocks in a more accelerated manner than, than perhaps they did. And how is that going to happen? Is it political will? Is it money? Is it cultural? Where do you think it's, uh, or tick all of the above? 
<laughs> I do think it's a combined effort of all of the above. I think uh, we're seeing a lot of citizen activism uh, in in cities that are demanding more from their political or from their politicians, um, and that needs to be a sustained effort. But then there also needs to be the recognition from our leaders that what might seem like an unpopular decision to put in cycle tracks or um, start building um, or creating spaces that are safer for cycling. Uh, might seem, you know, like political suicide, for lack of a better expression, there is this quiet majority that really, you know, whether they're going to bike or walk or drive or take transit, they do want cities that are better places to live, work and play. And so, you know, pushing forward, like here in Vancouver, like our uh, mayor who was elected in 2008, and then subsequently elected two more times, um, you know, he ran on a platform of putting in cycle tracks and it seemed like that would be the demise of his political career within year one. And here we are three terms later and only now because he's stepping down, is he not going to be our mayor again? Uh, so there is just that recognition, I think, that needs to happen in politicians that, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world and, you know, making decisions that are better for your your constituents in terms of healthy living and healthy lifestyles will in the end be quite a popular decision. Um, and then, yeah, I think there does need to be that cultural shift. I think we've gotten into a very, um, I don't know, detrimental cycle of being, for, <laughs> sorry for the pun, um, but this uh, detrimental path of being so focused on sport and mm. commuting to work and this really aggressive form of cycling um, outside of the Netherlands. And I think just a recognition that cycling isn't, for the fit and the brave and can be done by anyone at any age of any, you know, mobility, um, means to, you know, it's, it's totally accessible and something that we can all do. So that's, that's in the Netherlands say, but when yeah. you, when you translate that to, um, I mean, I'm obviously looking at this from a UK point of view and a North American point of view, it can often come across as a, a, a almost gentrification. It's a, it's a white middle-class, uh thing to put in cycle infrastructure this is for uh not for you know young blacks this is something that's for uh affluent people in effect does that ever exercise you that that is the even if it isn't the case it's certainly uh uh what an awful lot of people think is the case yeah i mean i think it's even here in Vancouver, I think we get frustrated now because we've done so well at building out the infrastructure in our downtown and in our more affluent areas. But um, really, the people that need those mobility options are the people that are living with lower incomes and need more options. And I think in that respect, we need to be looking at ways of providing better funding and making sure we're supporting those communities that that need the mobility options, just in the way that we should be providing them with accessible trans transit, we should be doing the same thing with providing them different options. Um, and I think that that just takes some foresight and it takes proper planning, proper zoning. There's, it's a whole bigger thing that we have the solutions to, but um, I think it's, you know, in or it's hard to avoid gentrification in, in, you know, the Western world context, but um, I think there needs to be, you know, proper the word is escaping me um like flip <laughs> if uh you know in politics they have to make special 
policies. That's the word I'm looking for. Okay. Policies to make sure they're protecting those communities. Um, so, social you know, inclusion. Exactly. Mm. We need that's social inclusion is very very important, um, and making sure that we're providing not just the housing but also the transportation options and you know protecting those people so that they don't feel they're being pushed out, which is which is difficult. I mean, it's happening here in Vancouver and. You know, we will unfortunately probably fall victim to it eventually ourselves. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a, definitely been a recognition in recent years that um, urban planning um, is really something that's only being done by and for the people that show up to the meetings. Mm -hmm. um, and there's been a distinct shift, at least we've seen, um, to get out into communities and actually go to where people live, work and play and engage with those people. Um, and try to involve them in the decision-making process, um, and and hopefully that will lead to more you know more inclusive um, planning process. But uh, there's there's no doubt that it's been an, a concern and an issue up to this point. Do you think any communities, perhaps of color, perhaps not, uh, will be worried that what you're trying to do is is get people out of cars, and what in fact those communities want? They want cars and they haven't got them, maybe, and, and, and they want them. And, and, and by having this, this middle class white perception agenda going, that would actually prevent them doing what they want to do, which was which is drive everywhere. Yeah, I, I, we came across this um, when we were writing the book and we kind of spent the first nine chapters um, in the backs of our minds, we kept hearing, well, the immigrant population in the Netherlands doesn't cycle as much as the as the regular, uh, you know, born and bred mm -hmm. uh, Dutch people. And uh, that was something we were hearing over and over and again. So in the final chapter, we finally kind of delved into uh, this idea. And we spoke to Ang Angela van de Kloof, who mm. just teaches cycling to um, immigrants and refugees in the Netherlands. And she made this point that really resonated with us. And that is that um, there's no inherent value system or, or um, cultural belief that um, people coming to the Netherlands want um, mopeds or cars or, uh, you know, any kind of status symbol that we may project onto them. All they want is the freedom to move and they want mobility and they, and they do want to um, integrate themselves with society. And so she found that the immigrants were coming to the government and asking for these cycling lessons um, as a way to get around their city. And um, she, you know, poignantly said that just because you're uh, Muslim or, or uh, Asian, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are coming to the country with a, a, a different set of needs or, or desires, um, that everybody has the same set of needs and desires. And that's basically just to... Um, get around the city comfortably and, and safely. Um, and, and, you know, she also made the point that virtually any country, if you're coming from any country to the Netherlands, whether it's Canada, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, or uh, Morocco, or, uh, you know, Indonesia, or, or Afghanistan, um, more often than not, you're not, you're coming from a place that doesn't cycle, where cycling isn't a normal activity. Um, so there is going to be a period of adjustment there, but, uh, I think the way that we project our, our stereotypes and our beliefs on, onto, uh, certain cultural, um, uh, groups is, is, is fascinating and may be 
uh, maybe isn't accurate if we if we just stop to listen to to what they have to say. I mean, in the end, they're all just you know they're all just people that are trying to get from point to B as efficiently and pragmatically as possible. And one of the things that you know we do like to emphasize when we're talking about implementing a lot of these tactics that they've done in the Netherlands is it's not cycling isn't the silver bullet for uh, transportation solutions. It's about creating a cohesive system where transport, uh, tra- public transportation, cycling, walking, and driving are all part of a seamless transportation option. And so we're provide the idea is to provide the options to the people that want them. And so if there are people that want to drive and are going to drive all the time, then what essentially is happening is you're creating the options for people that don't and making space for the people that do. So it's not about excluding, you know, the desires of how one one person wants to get around over another it's about creating options for everybody so you're not looking at forcing everybody to ride bikes is that a fear people think oh i don't want to ride a bike don't force me yeah and i I think you know we we make this point over and over again um i don't think we were we didn't fall in love with the netherlands because of the cycling and that sounds kind of counterintuitive and silly but um really what keeps us going back there and what really pushed us to uh, write this book was um, by building cycling cities, the Dutch have inadvertently just built better cities um, that are quieter, they're more pleasant, that are um, free for children to roam. Um, So whether you ride a bike or not is is kind of irrelevant by um, slowing down the cars, by reducing the volume of cars, by giving people options um, and creating more public pleasant public space um we everybody wins in that scenario it's not just about uh the quote-unquote cyclist or or the people that want to ride bikes chris you've also just described what what in american north american terms would be a socialist country in that the netherlands i mean it's not quite the same in fact it definitely isn't the same in 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 the uk but say countries uh like the netherlands from from a, a north american perspective are pretty much communist states in that they look after their citizens and that's the government's job. And, and, and people pay quite high taxes in these countries to have a socialised medicine system, to have a socialised cradle-to-grave um, social security system. Now, I'm sure Canada is different to North America, but just looking at this, because Island Press is, a, is a, an American, it's a Washington, D.C. publisher. So looking at this from a, a, an American perspective, how do you see your socialist, communist, cycling utopia going across in, in a capitalist uh, country that is, is, is a lot of the, the socialist, communist things. And it's not actually socialist, communist, but anyway, that's, that's the way many people would view it, mm-hmm. would come across it in that way. Um, I think <laughs> you, you've raised a tremendous point. And <laughs> we um, we went to a, a screening of the beautiful documentary Why We Cycle uh, mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, and the mayor of Kelowna got up, and kind of his immediate reaction to the film was, "Well, you know, in order to make that happen here, we'd have to change two things, and that's um, remove everything from the zoning code and create a free for all, and then remove capitalism, <laughs> <laughs> yes. you know, basically overthrow the capitalist system." Um, so there's obviously certain cultural things, um, that, that are, are barriers or at least perceived barriers, but, um, we've been reflecting a lot on how 
Western Canadian cities seem to have been uh, embracing cycling a lot more in recent years. You've got your, well, Vancouver kind of led the way, but then Calgary and Edmonton and Winnipeg and Victoria followed suit. And they're not just building, you know, one or two cycle tracks. They're building out entire networks of, of cycle tracks. So um, maybe that speaks to the, the cultural difference between the Canadians and the Americans. Um, and uh, we're actually, you know, going to be doing a lot of um, press and uh, and speaking engagements in the U.S. over the next few weeks. So we're we're interested to see where the conversation takes us and, and what it is inherently perhaps about U.S. Uh, culture and 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 cities that makes them a little more hostile to these kinds of concepts and ideas. But I don't think they're necessarily um, held. Uh, there's a you know a barrier between them because we did see cases of you know um, in Atlanta they're looking at how to combine bike and transit. And so these ideas are starting to permeate. Austin is putting in a cycling network for those smaller uh, under three mile trips. You know, Portland was for a time leading the way and hopefully with all these other cities starting to catch up, it'll be a nice little kick in the butt for them. So we are seeing these pockets of it happening and even New York City building, you know, taking the mean streets of New York and starting to take back some of that space and give it to people. It's happening. Um, it's, it might not be happening as fast as say here in Canada or even in the UK, but I think, you know, inherently, like even when it comes to the cultural stuff we were just talking about, Americans still want to enjoy their cities and they still want places to spend time, spend money. Um, they don't inherently want their cities to be dominated by cars, but I think, you know, there is, you're absolutely right. There is a little bit of that. You know, here we in Canada, we do think a little more about helping each other, whereas they're still they're still on that journey. And hopefully they can in the next you know, four to six years start to correct themselves a bit. Um, but, you know, everyone we talk to there, they all I mean, arguably, yes, they do sit left of center, but most of them still want those livable cities. And, you know, hopefully that our book can provide a little bit of inspiration for that and a little bit of uh, forward thinking that they can use even to make baby steps to get a little bit further along. Do you know, I, I, I'm trying to, to think where I saw this, but talking about like communism and how, you know, cycling is, is considered, you know, that mayor you've just talked about, you know, something you'd have to get rid of capitalism. Whereas if you actually look at what uh, the amenities and the, the provision and the luxuries uh, people in the UK and the US and, of course, in, in, in Canada give to cars, well, that's pretty much a communist society in that cars get everything. You know, cars just uh, are allowed to ride roughshod over everything. So that's pretty much, you know, cars equal communism. <laughs> yeah, there was a, a great uh, headline. I think it was in... Uh... City Observatory was, you know, the Americans are dead set against communism, except when it comes to parking their automobile. Yeah, there we go. Way. That's that was definitely where I was. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So if we can do it for cars, then uh, by extrapolation, you, you can do it for bikes. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully. Um, I think the the fear we have now, and it was actually, I mean, it's the same concerns that we had that we heard through uh, the colleagues that we interviewed in the Netherlands is what role does autonomous technology play in that? And so that's sort of the next, I think, chapter for a lot of cities throughout around the world is what, as as self-driving cars and autonomous vehicles become part of the uh, social fabric of our cities, 
what does that mean in terms of the space that we've allocated? Um, because right now in most North American cities, there's tons of space for them and people see it as the solution for transportation options, but aren't necessarily recognizing that it's trading one problem for another and not solving the problem of creating the livable cities. So it'll be interesting, I think, to see how that starts. I mean, it's already happening in you know, in Silicon Valley. So mm -hmm. see how that plays a role. Um, but hopefully before they take over, we can start, we can start to recognize maybe if we just carve out a bit more space mm. for walking and cycling, or even use this as an opportunity to have that space because the demands on parking will be less. Um, if we have cars roaming around <laughs> waiting for the next pickup, mm. um, but yeah, some interesting conversations that we had around that and, and are still having with, people in our circles is what does autonomy mean in terms of the future of mobility? Mm -hmm. So in, in, in your book, one of the chapters um, is how cycling is transport, uh, not just a, a, a sport. So wh where do you see existing hardcore spandex stroke lycra um, cyclists fitting into your into your worldview yeah i think we we perhaps fairly get a bad rap for um uh disparaging that type of cycling um and 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 we have to always point out well we're not against that that type of cycling you know those people are already riding a bike and that's great um, but the important point we must make is that that type of cycling only will appeal to a certain minority of the population. Um, and the the fact that the Dutch have two different words for cyclists um, kind of makes that distinction between the walking with wheels and the running with wheels. There's still room on their streets for both both type of cyclists. But the fact that the the casual everyday, um, you know, upright um, person riding around without a helmet and in their street clothes, the fact that that cyclist dominates their streets just speaks volumes to how accessible and normal cycling is and how safe and comfortable it's been made. Um, so we should be, um, in all of these kind of urban planning decisions being taken that, uh, that, uh, interested, but concerned, um, audience in, into consideration and, and those people on the, on the road bikes, that are cycling for sport or exercise or just commuting um, with a little bit more bravado um, will we'll certainly keep on riding. And, and, uh, but it's the, it's the other, other type of uh, quote unquote cyclist that we, we have to foster and encourage. And that's the, I mean, that's what cities are measuring. Those that are putting in infrastructure is they're measuring the number of children riding, the number of women and elderly riding or, or people of various minorities that they're starting to see come out because they've been provided with a safer space to ride and because it's being presented as something that is more accessible. And so it's not, you know, it's not just about creating a safe space, but it's about making it more inclusionary and more accessible to everybody. Um, whereas, you know, we talk to people in Vancouver that have been, I've been riding since before there were bike lanes. And we always say, that's wonderful. Keep riding. But this stuff is for the people that didn't want to do that because they didn't feel comfortable riding in traffic. Um, or riding, you know, at top speeds for 30 kilometers a day each way. You know, that's great for you, but this isn't for you. This is for the people that wouldn't do it otherwise. Sure. So, Chris, you mentioned uh, the sit-up-and-beg 
bike, the kind of the, 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 mm-hmm. the typical uh, Dutch bike. And that's also, it features on the, uh, the front cover of your book, kind of the archetypal Dutch bike. Um, we know that that's actually an English bike of the early 1900s. But however, we'll do, I'm, not, I'm not going that way. Uh, <laughs> the, the, this kind of bike, um, I, I'm talking from an industry point of view here. So that kind yeah. of bike is, is a fascinating bike, is a wonderful bike, it's a practical bike. It's a bike that obviously is perfect for the Netherlands and is almost a lifestyle kind of bike elsewhere. Do you think that kind of bike can survive outside of the Netherlands in that it's very practical for the Netherlands for the very reasonably obvious you know, reasons that it's kind of flat? How can that bike, that type of bike, be translated into cities where it's very different? It's not, it's not flat. It's not the same kind of um, place. So one of the things that we've started to uh, witness is that while it's still a small portion of the market, there are bike manufacturers that see the benefit of the more upright, um, more practical way of uh, being positioned on a bike and are taking that and designing it in a way that makes sense for these cities. Like, like Vancouver, for example, we have a lot of hills here and it's a frequent excuse is I can't ride a bike like that because I have to go up hills. And so they're taking this practical design and evolving it and adapting it in a way that makes sense. So I ride a bike that was actually designed and designed in Australia with three speeds. It's lighter weight and it is still an upright bike, but I can ride it from the waterfront up to our home in East Vancouver quite comfortably. And so and I'm seeing more and more of my friends asking me, where do I get a bike like that? How do I get upright? Melissa, what is that bike? What, what kind of bike you got? Oh, oh it's called, it, the brand is Papionaire, uh, like Papillon with air, like millionaire at the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so people will test out my bike and they're like, oh, this is great. I'm so much more comfortable. And so they can find there are other brands. We've got Simcoe, which is a brand out of Toronto. Linus has done quite well from uh, California. And a lot of other brands that are starting to uh, bring this more um, Dutch style model of bike into an outside of Netherlands context. So they're usually a little bit lighter. They probably have a few more speeds, but they still have that comfortable riding position. Or they might have electric assist, which is yeah. the next, the kind yes. of next generation. Of- I, I kind of thought that's where you would go in that. Uh, <laughs> is a hill okay? Put an electric uh, motor on it. That'll that'll get you up the hill. When yeah. you when we we actually spoke to you for this chapter, Carlton, and you really presented us with a dilemma. And I don't think it's a dilemma that we actually resolve by the end of the chapter is, um, you know, the people, there's a certain segment of the population that does want these upright city bikes, but it's not enough of a demand for the shops to dedicate retail uh, floor space and, Mm -hmm. um, and train their staff on them. Um, And so, you know, we kind of see that as a, a bit of a barrier because uh, and Vancouver is a great, great example. You walk into any bike shop here and they may have one or two city bikes kind of sitting off in the corner and their staff aren't really trained to deal or, or sell um, you the bike that you necessarily want. Um, so there's a bit of a, a you know, a gap between um, perhaps what people want or what they think they want. Um, and uh, we, we really don't know if, if that gap is 
if we're able to bridge that gap without, you know, some kind of a real push from the bike manufacturers um, to more utilitarian machines. I think it works both ways in that bike shops, and I've been around this 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 industry quite a long time, so I've seen some of these um, uh, changes happen. Um, bike shops used to be um, told off for not selling mountain bikes, so they were only selling road bikes. And then when enough people asked for mountain bikes, they sold mountain bikes because bike shop owners, they're not stupid. They will sell what people want. So -hmm. if people came in and wanted Dutch bikes, they would sell lots and lots of Dutch bikes. So what they're seeing is not that many people. They're seeing some people asking for Dutch bikes, but not enough to make them change the whole strategy of their shop floor. But, you know, you look at bike shops, you know, 30 years ago, and it was just road bikes. But then it changed and it was just mountain bikes. And now you go into a typical bike shop and I would say folding bikes are are, are a huge category now, which wasn't the case, you know, 10 years ago. A folding bike, you know, you'd have one Brompton in the corner. If that, (laughs) now you've got, you know, turns, you've got Dahons, you've got Bromptons, you know, coming out of your your ears. It's just amazing what what bike shops are stocking now. So they can change. Mm -hmm. But my point is... Uh, they're not the stick in the the muds here. It's the consumer. It's the bike shops will sell what consumers want. So you haven't got to change bike shops alone. In yeah. fact, you probably have to change the consumer first because the bike shop will sell what the consumer wants at the end of the day. Yeah, and I, I, we make this point when we spoke to um, Firth and Wilson Transport Cycles in Philadelphia. As they saw, once the bike share scheme went out there and people were able to ride upright bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one tool that um, kind of brought people in the shop looking for them because yeah. all of a sudden they they can experience a, a different type of cycling and a more comfortable um, bicycle. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that virtually every bike share scheme around the world you see uh, is this step through frame is an upright uh, riding posture. Again, it may be a slightly adapted version with a, a lighter um, frame and uh, uh, gears three, five, seven gears, but um, this this kind of tried and, and tested design and, and riding position uh, has lasted this long for a reason because um, it, it really is the perhaps the most practical way to just uh, do a slow roll around your city. And it's it's amazing. I find the number of people that I talk to. It just happened to me last week. I was talking to someone about my bike and. They had said they had just been to California and had ridden an upright bike, and they were amazed at how how much more comfortable it was. And so most of us grew up not riding these bikes, at least you know here in North America, and and I'm, I'm assuming the UK as well. And then once they experience it, they recognize like ah, it's actually a lot more comfortable to ride this way. And so as more and more people do that through the bike share schemes, through you know renting bikes at various cities when they're visiting, they start to recognize that, and then you know hopefully then that demand will start to come to the bike shops for more options, more utilitarian options. Mm-hmm. And cargo bikes, which is another kind of... Yes. That's very Dutch. Um, also very Danish. So that kind mm-hmm. of brings me into Copenhagen. Um, so in, in the, the, the introduction to your book, you do have this paragraph uh, where you could actually write a whole book on this, but about the, the difference between... Uh, not not Denmark essentially, but because it's very much Copenhagen is where it's um, it's that's where the cycling takes place in 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 Denmark rather than than the whole country. And I don't want to use the word 
disparaging of Copenhagen because that clearly will will set off all sorts of alarm bells. But you are slightly dismissive, shall we say, about Copenhagen compared to the Dutch example. Just 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 talk us through that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think um, well one of one of the things that uh, we come back to is that. Um, Copenhagen has been very good at marketing themselves. Sure, they have incredible cycling numbers and they're a wonderful place to ride bikes and they've got this great cycling culture. But as you've just said, it's one city, whereas the Dutch have an entire nation that has been doing this for for decades. And the Dutch, unfortunately, haven't been very good at celebrating that story. And so this, that's part of why we wanted to tell the story that we did is just letting people know that there is this like countrywide example of how we can build our cities for cycling. Um, the stat, yeah. the stat that we we use in the book, and um, it still blows my mind every time I repeat it. But you know, everyone talks about how bikes. There's more bikes and cars in in Copenhagen, and um, the Dutch quietly are sitting on this fact that there's 202 different Dutch cities, towns, and villages where bikes outnumber cars. But we, the Dutch are so understated and so humble um, that they they don't think that this is a remarkable achievement, and mm. and so um, we really felt compelled to share um, their story as a cycling nation and and point out that they've done it in a variety of contexts and uh, and a variety of scales, and it's not just the big cities. They've done it in small cities and mid-sized cities, um, and and really, you know, in, as we we say, it's not just copying and pasting one form of infrastructure as uh, maybe certain people suggest that that it is very context based and uh, very prescriptive uh, approach, and uh, they they really you know have, uh, have have achieved some tremendous successes, and and we have a lot a lot to learn from that. So I want people to buy your book, uh, and I want people to know more about what's what's in there. So I've got the the list of chapters here. So there are ten chapters. Can you? summarize each chapter and I will I will tell you which chapter I'm talking about um, and just briefly describe what each chapter is about see we, we can't obviously you know I don't know how many words are in your book a hundred thousand words we can't obviously discuss every single word in the book and and give away every snippet but if you just give a brief flavor of what each chapter is about so starting with the first one streets aren't set in stone well basically the theme of that chapter is that exactly as the title says, our streets are not set in stone. They can be changed and we can make them one way and then recognize that they could be a better way and change them again. And Rotterdam and New York City provide the examples for how that can be done, both in a historical and a more uh, more present context. Not sport transport. We've kind of talked about it, but can you expand on that one? Number two, yeah. chapter number two. We look at uh, the barriers to kind of the mass uptake of cycling in North America that's not specific to the infrastructure. So these, the idea of riding a bike for transportation, um, how the retail industry and uh, manufacturing industry perhaps um, can play a role in that. And then um, we finally explore how uh, electrification is bringing more people into cycling and, uh, and perhaps is a, a tool to get more people riding more often. Third chapter, Fortune Favours the Brave. It's spelt wrong. Favours has got a U in it, by the way. But anyway, carry on. Fortune Favours the Brave. Uh, as a side note, that was very difficult for us, Carlton, yeah. to write in American style. So. I, I know. I, I had exactly the same problem. That's, I'm kind of ribbing you for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
that chapter is entirely focused on political bravery. Um, we look at the Groningen context in terms of Max Vanderberg, uh, who came in with this grandiose idea that seemed crazy and ended up making Groningen one of the best cycling cities. Um, and then what that looks like in North America, and we come to our hometown of Vancouver and, and what's happened here politically to get us from where we were 10 years ago with no cycle tracks to where we are now. With how many miles? Oh, how many miles? I Kilometers. don't know. I don't know how many. What do you yeah. use? Oh. <laughs> what is happening? It's, Isn't uh, it 400 uh, miles? Isn't that the normal? That would be, that would include all the bicycle boulevards yes, and, yes. Uh, and painted bike lanes. And uh, I couldn't even begin to guess because we're building new cycle, like four new cycle tracks as we speak. So mm. um, the progress and, and uh, over that decade has been absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, we've probably got uh, several dozen um, fully separated bike lanes that stretch uh, across the city now at this point. And they've all been built in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. Uh, chapter four, one size won't fit all. So we really get into the kind of uh, uh, brick and mortar of, of Dutch infrastructure, talking about the crow manual and the various classifications of roads and, and types of infrastructure they build, the, the way they treat intersections. Um, and then uh, looking at how the city of Austin, Texas has, has started working with the Dutch embassy to implement a Dutch inspired network. Um, and that all comes back to capturing these short three mile and under trips um, that the Dutch do so well. And demand more, fifth chapter. Uh, that chapter is all about citizen activism. Um, Hyper-locate or hyper-centralized to the fights that happened in Amsterdam in the 50s, 60s and 70s um, in terms of pushing back to modernist design, pushing their politicians to rethink their streets, um, including, you know, some pretty drastic measures like die-ins and pointing out the number of children that were being killed by cars every year. And then we look at Boston, where our friend Jonathan Furtig, who has moved from there since, but was at the time, um, basically doing the same thing um, as a very grassroots effort to get the city of Boston and the politicians to recognize that their streets weren't good enough and they weren't safe and finding tactical ways, tactical urbanist ways of making making the point and helping pr uh, promote change. Which, of course, is another Island Press book. Yes. yes. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, chapter six, think outside the van. Uh, that chapter is all about the back feats uh, and how <clears throat> the cargo bike, uh, which was kind of lost for, for several decades, has uh, made a bit of a comeback uh, starting in 2001, um, both for personal family use but also um, now, in recent years, we're seeing it uh, in logistics organizations, so moving freight um, from Albert Heijn, the local grocer um, that's shipping crates of groceries around Amsterdam, to the Coca-Cola company, which is now servicing its vending machines um, with a cargo bike full of tools, um, and uh, the, finding a, a parallel in North America was a little bit tricky, but we, we uh, shine a light on the cargo bike scene in Portland, Oregon. Um, and how some different cargo bike manufacturers and uh, freight companies have popped up there in, in their kind of uh, vibrant bicycle culture. And chapter seven, build at a human scale. 
That chapter is all about Utrecht, <laughs> which was our favorite city, and really, you know, delving into the history of the city, um, and also, you know, pointing out that they were starting to make some mistakes in their ill-fated highway from nowhere to nowhere. Um, but really examining how, again, pushing back, or citizens pushing back, and also local organizations, all without knowing, working towards the same goal, we're all focused on building a human-scale city. So a, a city where their downtown is completely car-free and enjoyed by everybody. Um, and, you know, to us, we like that city is just the perfect example of what a small, compact, livable place can be. Um, and then we look at, in terms of that, recognizing the highway um, fight, looking at San Francisco, who is currently... Uh, re-examining while at a larger um, larger population scale, still a, a fairly compact city and recognizing that some of the spaces that they've built for cars uh, could be retrofitted, some forcibly retrofitted due to the tragic earthquake they had in the 90s, but also, you know, looking at some of the other infrastructure they have along the waterfront and how that can be improved. Okay, and chapter eight, which you have entitled Use Bikes to Feed Transit. Yeah, that was uh, a fun chapter to write because um, it's really one thing the Dutch excel at and, and perhaps one of the more valuable lessons for um, sprawling North American cities is the way that um, the Dutch have uh, used bicycles to feed the transit system and also used uh, the transit system to fill the cycleways. And the statistic that um, you know always does the rounds is that half of all uh, train trips in the Netherlands start with a bike ride. So an awful lot of advocates in, in many countries, certainly in the UK, they, 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 they try and get train companies to take bikes. And that's like their, their modus operandi. And yet when you go to the Netherlands, you know, you get maybe three or four bikes on a train. That's it. It's all, you know, these higher bikes at the station. So that they're, they're actively Ned railways are actively trying to get people not to bring bikes on trains. Yeah, so it's a, it's a completely a different approach. It's an important distinction, and I think you know one that we advocate for is not actually not allowing bikes on trains because it's rather inefficient use of rather expensive you know platform platform and uh, and uh, car space, um, and uh, it's not a scalable solution. So we we reference Copenhagen again, perhaps in a disparaging way, but you know only fifteen percent of people uh, arrive to the train station by bike. Um, and that is in part because they allow bikes on their trains there. And once those trains are full, you can, there's no way to scale up from there. So mm -hmm. by allowing for secure bicycle parking at the train station and encouraging people to leave their bike there and then providing a last mile solution on the other side with the OV feats, um, it's a much more efficient and scalable system and, and economic as well. Um, and, and one that we would certainly advocate for. Okay, and chapter nine, put your city on the map. Oh, that one. We kind of ex explore um, a relatively newer phenomenon of putting in bike bling. Um, so essentially building these massive infrastructure projects that are, well, not massive, but putting in infrastructure projects that are quite um, flashy and attractive. Uh, in the city of Eindhoven, they... They put in the Hoven Ring, um, which is a solution for like a transportation solution in terms of a problem that existed at an intersection, but in a way that essentially put them on the world scene. Um, I think prior to that, nobody really knew who or where Eindhoven was. Um, 
but how those are, how we need, you know, it's great to have those projects, those prestige projects, but do it in a way that makes sense for the network and making things more accessible. Um, and then we look at a North American example in Calgary of um, how the Peace Bridge, which is there, was their first piece of beautiful, infra, beautiful architecture, uh, sort of spurred um, bicycle solutions and transportation solutions in a city that, you know, for most Canadians, we would not associate with active transportation. Okay, and your final chapter, even though there was a conclusion and about the authors and acknowledgements, etc., but the, the final <laughs> chapter with a, a number on is learn to ride like the Dutch. What's that about? Yeah, we uh, we wanted to kind of round out the book by getting into um, why the Dutch cycle um, beyond the kind of obvious um, urban planning and design decisions. So the this idea of education and encouragement um, that exists there. Um, and so that's where we spoke to uh, Angela about the program she runs for um, teaching immigrants and refugees, and then somebody at the Fiesesbond about the uh, the classes that they offer um, and the examinations of, of children for children to uh get a nice diploma and learn the rules of the road. And, and, uh, and so they're set up with a set of skills to cycle at a very early age. And, and we feel that's an important um, part of um, rediscovering the, the bicycle as a mo mode of transportation here in North America. Um, and so we looked at Seattle as a, um, a burgeoning uh, idea of that in that they built a couple of these traffic gardens um, which were actually inspired by Copenhagen, so we'll uh, we'll give them props where it's where, where it's due, due. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, and they're providing uh, I guess a middle ground between the classroom and the and the real world for people to or children mostly uh, to learn how to negotiate streets um, and and ride a bicycle. So um, yeah, we uh, we wrapped up the book. Um, with this uh, analogy, we were speaking to our friend Leonard, who um, has worked both professionally as a cycling planner in the Netherlands and in, in New Zealand. And uh, he kind of made this point that the, the Dutch, an analogy that the Dutch are an older married couple and, and these more new, exciting cycling cities are a young couple that are in love and um, that they the Dutch have, as this older, wiser couple, have a lot to teach this younger couple about relationships uh, or, or cycling in this analogy. Um, and uh, we certainly would believe that the, the Netherlands has a lot to teach uh, the, the, these new cycling cities. But uh, We also have a lot of ways that we can forge new paths based on that wisdom that they have to provide. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I don't know if, how much of this was, was deliberate, but each time I asked you to uh describe the chapter you each took one in turn <laughs> uh, now that's that's obviously a a wonderful description of your married life however how did you write the book what was the, what was the, the the mode of writing it did you each write a chapter and then somebody else wrote another one or did you talk around this or was there one person who actually writes it all and the other person doesn't how describe how you physically wrote this book as a married couple uh well we did almost every interview together um, and then basically we split up each chapter 50-50 so um, we would each sort of take a topic a lot of times that was a little more challenging for us um, because you know and you inherently have certain interests 
um, based on your worldview. And while Chris and I share a lot of the same uh, lifestyle, we have different perspectives. And so we would split each chapter up um, using that as the guide. Um, Chris would transcribe an interview or transcribe and write half. I would transcribe and write half. And then we'd come together and go through it. So it was a bit of a laborious um, process, but it gave us a chance to um, both have equal equal impact on the story that we told and be able to merge our language in a way that uh, would make it more accessible for our readers. And um, yeah, I think it worked out pretty well. <laughs> yeah. The, at the end of the day, we can say that, you know, we both contributed 50% and mm-hmm. um, we hope that it reads as one um, kind of consistent voice. Um, but, uh, you know, we kind of both brought, as you said, our, our complementary um, strengths and weaknesses and, uh, and, um, interests and, and passions and, uh, areas of focus and, and it kind of just beautifully, <laughs> um, <laughs> inter intertwined into, into this narrative that we hope, uh, you know, people really enjoy. Yeah. One of the things that we like to joke around about is that Chris approaches things much more technically and wonky, if you will. And I approach it much more from an emotional and, mm-hmm. uh, feelings kind of level and then we sort of balance it out from there <laughs> that sounds almost the perfect way of writing a book so you've got the kind of the yin and the yang and the the kind of the male and the female if you if you want to go down that way so you've got something that's that's absolutely meeting in the middle and it's 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 a marriage a genuine literal and and metaphorical marriage yeah i guess <laughs> we, had, we had thought about it that way but it's a beautiful way of putting it yeah, yeah. okay now I'm sure you were absolutely thrilled when you physically saw, because I know I am, uh, physically saw the real thing in the flesh. And it's soon going to be winging its way out there to, to people out in the, the, the great uh, wild world. But you're also taking this uh, on the road. So you are going out and you are talking about your book uh in, in a variety of, of, by the look of it, cities around the world. So just tell us about your, your speaker tour, where you're going and when you're going. Uh, so we're starting out um, heading back, well, what is back east for us? So we're on the west coast and we're going back to our hometown of Kitchener, <laughs> but starting Kitchener, Ontario, but starting out in Guelph and doing a bit of an Ontario and Quebec tour. And then um, we're going to end up uh, doing the Eastern seaboard of the U S and so that's sort of the initial two week tour. I think we've got how many cities, eight, eight. cities. Um, so Guelph, Ontario, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, Boston, New York city, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and DC. And then we come back home to Vancouver and do a few, um, engagements here. We also going down to Seattle, uh, for in the early fall. And then, excitingly enough, we get to take the book across the Pacific to Australia and New Zealand uh, later on in the fall, and well, yeah, late fall, and share our story with uh, audiences in uh, Bendigo, Australia, Perth, Sydney, Brisbane, Auckland, and, and um, also potentially Wellington and Christchurch. So, uh, really taking it all over, and then seeing where we go from there. Um, so, yeah, it's. Um, it's an Christchurch was a big cycling city. I get, do you know that? It was a huge Which one, cy- sorry? Christchurch was the cycling city <laughs> of New Zealand. It was like it was more Dutch than the Dutch in the 1930s. So it was a huge cycling culture. 
Uh, yeah, we we did a, a short tour of New Zealand uh, a few years ago, but we weren't uh, lucky enough to make it to Christchurch. So we're we're really excited to to uh, actually visit this time around. So what about the UK and and perhaps even more importantly, what about the Netherlands? <laughs> We've had some uh, inquiries, and you know I think we're we're tentatively looking at uh, a European tour in early 2019, but uh, it will depend on, on funding. Uh, as you know, Carlton, uh, we <laughs> have written for a, a nonprofit and, and they've been wonderfully supportive and helpful where they can, but uh, author uh, promotion is not one area where they have a lot of resources. So we're basically self-financing and uh, self-organizing, <laughs> um, which has caused a lot of gray hair and a lot of stress because oh, we're- Oh, come on, you're already gray. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're simultaneously planning you know a dozen different events in a dozen different cities and um it, it's a lot of work but we would really like to to make it to the uk and 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 definitely back to the netherlands for a a, a third visit in four years mm-hmm. uh, and let's uh, describe where people can get this book and then tell us about your social media personas where people can can hook up with you uh, well, um, the, one of the easiest ways to find our book would be to go to islandpress.com. Org. Org. Sorry, islandpress.org, <laughs> um, where you can purchase the book direct from the publisher, but you can also find it on any bookselling site. So uh, Amazon, which, as Chris mentioned, is not shipping till the release date on the 28th. You can also get it on Barnes & Noble, uh, Indigo Chapters if you're in Canada. I'm not sure what the equivalent is in the UK. Um, all, all fine bookstores. All fine bookstores. <laughs> and then digitally, it's also available as a as a Kindle file, yeah, as yes, an ebook. It is also available as an ebook. And it will soon be available as an audio book as well, which is quite exciting. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool! How is that being done? Um, the Island Press have partnered with a production company, um, and they've hired a some voice talent and. Uh, the, the publisher's been taking care of it, so we, we don't know the details right now, but uh, it will be more details will be released closer to the August 28th. Uh, oh, August. I thought you were going to say, you're going to do one chapter, Melissa does the next. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're... Your no, kids no. do the conclusion, <laughs> kind of a complete family thing. That would have been fun. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know when we would have fit it in, but that would have been a lot of fun. Sure. Um, and then in terms of finding us, we, you can find us online at modacity, M-O-D-A-C-I-T-I, life.com. And the book information is all available uh, there as well. And then on social media, we are at Modacity Life on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, um, all that kind of, all that fun stuff. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Melissa, Chris, Thank you ever so much for for taking the time today. It is a a fascinating and timely book uh, from a a wonderful publisher. Um, (laughs) I'm absolutely no no skin in the game here. Um, uh, So thank you ever so much for for chatting to me today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for chatting with us. Thanks, Carlton. We really appreciate it. Thanks to Chris and Melissa Bruntlett there. I've included their social media handles and the details for their book on this show's website, which is the-spokesman.com. That's also where you'll find the show notes for all of the 196 episodes of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast to date. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for subscribing to the show. 
even if episode 195 has yet to appear in iTunes. And thanks for telling your friends about the Spokesman podcast. And hey, feel free to go write a review about the show on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And then get out there and ride. Mm-hmm.